0: Turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter four, the last chapter in Ruth. We're going to hear the end of the story of Ruth today. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here, and he turned aside and sat down and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilian and to Mahlon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Wim. Merry Christmas, everyone. Good to see a full room. Glad you all are here. Glad to have visitors and family members. Um, it's a sweet time of year, and it's sweet to worship with you all. Um, Uh, For those who are just stepping into this series and don't really know why we're reading this passage or what this has to do with Christmas, let me fill you in. Um, The book of Ruth is all about anticipation. It is this woman, Ruth, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, who are essentially uh, enemies who have been forged together in uh, this family of God. Uh, representing the heart of God as a, as a heart that desires for people from all over, every nation, tongue, and tribe to be together, to be His people. And God has brought them together through famine. Um, they literally were about to starve to death. They they lost their husbands. They lost the men in the family to provide, and they were in a terrible situation. Uh, they even went off into um, this foreign land called Moab, Israel's sworn enemy, uh, into a place they were not meant to go to find relief from their famine They did not find relief there. They found only death. They returned back to Judah, to Israel, um, because they hear that the Lord has shown favor to Israel and ended the famine. This family comes back. Ruth is a Moabite. That's where Naomi picked up Ruth, was in Moab. So she comes back with this label as enemy, as one who is less than the people of Israel. And so she is a marked woman. She is a woman with a reputation, a very negative reputation. And she seeks out uh, in Naomi's great discouragement Uh, of the loss that she's had, and Ruth takes it on her own initiative to go and to provide for the family in the absence of having any men there to provide. And in faith, uh, she's converted to trust in the God of Israel that he will provide for them. And she goes out into these fields, gleaning and gathering the scraps from the table, the leftovers in the field, and she comes to this redeemer named Boaz, a man who sees her in his desire and love and passion for her, says, I want to be your redeemer. Even though you are an enemy of the people of God, you are Ruth the Moabite, and you have nothing to offer me, I want to offer you everything. And that should be a reminder of exactly what Jesus has done for us in the Christmas story. He has come to us in our spiritual poverty, in our spiritual famine, with nothing to offer Him. Your good works are not what saves you. Your resume of success the, the amount of money in your bank account offers no merit before a holy God. You are a sinful and broken human being with no righteousness of your own. And yet our Redeemer says, I, lo- I love you. And he loves a whole sordid mess of us. Because the ones he does choose to love and to rescue out of our own spiritual famine, he does so with a heart to save all different kinds of people, with all different kinds of backgrounds and resumes and bank accounts and possessions and different things. God saves indiscriminately. He saves liberally those people who put their trust and their faith in him. And that's what Ruth is all about. That's what the Christmas season is all about, that we look back on that first advent of him keeping his promise to send a rescuer and a redeemer, which he did, and that is our guarantee that he will come back. We know that that took place in history. Jesus was an actual person. How did he get here? What is his life about? Is he really Lord and Savior? Those are the questions we need to ask ourselves, because the hope of the church is that one day he will come back. So let's look at this old story and see what modern hope we have even for ourselves today, especially as the church. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for this story. I thank you for the life it brought me this week, the perspective on life that it gave me. Uh, the way in which you convicted my heart of my own spiritual poverty. Lord, I try so hard to um, make you love me, to make you like me with the things that I do, the thoughts that I conceive, Lord, and yet you don't love me because of those things. You love me because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone in this room who's spent their lives exhausting themselves, thinking that they are somehow earning their salvation that you give them great relief this morning. Lord, that it be the relief that that even their bad choices, even the the biggest mistakes they've made in life, don't disqualify them from your love. Because even as our good works can't save us, our bad works can't overcome your grace. We can't outsend your grace. I pray that if, if I say anything today that we just sit in that hope. I pray that Flat Rock be a church that prepares us for your return, whenever that may be. That we live as people who are living as though this is our last day, loving and giving liberally and sacrificially as Jesus gave to us, our Savior and Redeemer. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So I was reminded of an interesting story this week um, that I've, I've come across before uh, that I was reminded of as, as I was looking at this story in Ruth chapter 4, and it's about a man named Rick Norsegian, who was an avid garage sale shopper. One of you, you somebody in this room may be an avid, do we have any avid garage sale shoppers, Any? rummagers who love to just rummage through and find old treasures that look like they're not worth anything. Well that's what Rick loved to do and he loved to do that on his Saturdays in his spare time and so in the year 2000 he goes rummaging through a garage sale somewhere in his neighborhood and he always is looking for the thing that no one else notices and he notices two cardboard boxes sitting underneath a table in the corner of this man's garage and he's immediately drawn to these boxes and he opens up the boxes and he looks in and he sees these old black and white negatives of Yosemite National Park. And he thinks to himself, These are beautiful. I want these. How much are they? The man says, 75 bucks. And of course, like any good garage sale shopper, he negotiates that price in half and walks away with these beautiful black and white negatives of Yosemite National Park for $35. And like most garage sale shoppers, he takes these newfound photographs home with him and he puts them under his pool table and he doesn't touch them for four years. Until one day, he realizes he has these black and white negatives four years later and he thinks to himself, you know what, I haven't done anything with those. Maybe I can sell them for the $70 that someone else tried to sell them for and I'll just double my money and my investment here. And so he goes online and he starts researching Uh, what these pictures might be and where they might be from. And he he stumbles upon the missing works of Ansel Adams, who's famously known for photographing Yosemite National Park. And there's some missing photographs in Ansel's, uh, uh, in his, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In his collection, yes. Uh, From 1919 to 1930, known as the missing period of Adams' work. And he takes them to an appraiser. The appraiser looks at him and he thinks, I think these are the pictures that people thought got burned up in a garage fire that Ansel Adams had, and we didn't know where they were, so now we do. And I think that's what they are. And then they, then they have to, to really figure out, to authenticate them, he has to take them to the FBI, lawyers, appraisers, photography experts, antique sellers, who all said that they are the authentic missing Ansel Adams photo, photographs that are believed to be worth $200 million. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for the dramatic effect. I paid him to do that. What? Yeah, $200 million. And as I was thinking about that story, I thought about the, you know, the famous saying we all know of is, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Um, what one man had discarded in this corner of his garage underneath a table was worth $200 million. And as we look at Ruth chapter 4, we, we can think similar thoughts. It applies similarly. What is one man's trash is another man's treasure. As Boaz is so desirous of redeeming Ruth, he goes way out of his way to to become her redeemer, and he goes to this man who's supposed to be the one who is to redeem her and restore her fortunes and her value, and he passes on the deal because he sees it as being worthless, of being trash, essentially. But what we find out at the end of chapter 4 is that what Boaz desires to redeem in Ruth is invaluable. It has a value to it that is immeasurable, that is far more valuable than $200 million. And a lot of us don't say, what? We just think, what's that really worth? What is this Ruth really worth? What is this genealogy really worth? So I want to show you what it's worth. And I want to to do it by looking at two questions how Ruth was redeemed, and then why Ruth is redeemed, okay? How is Ruth redeemed? Well, Boaz, being the good businessman that he is and the well-known landowner that he is, he goes to the city gate where a lot of the government business was done and transactions were made and the elders of the city would sit and a lot of the business was done. And so he goes there and he thinks to himself, you know, I'm just going to wait for... This, uh, this unnamed redeemer who is next in line, who is close, most closely related to Ruth, um, who is supposed to help her in this situation, but hasn't. She's been back for a while. She's known in the community. This man knew of his relationship to Naomi and Ruth, and he knew what he was supposed to do, and he hadn't done it yet. And Boaz is thinking, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So he shows up at the gate, and this man providentially walks by. Boaz grabs his attention And he lets him know that this is a legal matter, and he brings elders to authenticate, to be witnesses of this transaction that Boaz would like to take place. He fills the man in on the situation as if he didn't know to make sure he's fully abreast of what's going on. And he says, Naomi, whose husband has died, um, had left a field for them, and they own this field, but Naomi doesn't have anything. So the field is essentially worthless to her because she can't sell it because you're the one who has the right to it. And part of your duty is to buy this field, to restore her fortunes, to take her into your family, and to care for her. But you haven't done that. So I want to do it. And he says, are you going to buy this field? And this is a public place, so the man, in order to save face, he immediately jumps at the opportunity, thinking, you know what? I'll buy it. It'll be part of my inheritance. We'll have to take care of this old lady. Not a big deal. She can live. We'll give her food, whatever. Now, well, that sounds like a good deal for me. I'm going to make a lot of money off of this. And it sounds like a, a, a can't-miss deal here. But then Boaz tells him to find print. And he basically says, there's a woman you're related to named Naomi who has a field and needs to sell it to have money to live on. You're first in line to buy it and make it part of your inheritance. Are you interested? Yes. Oh, by the way... One more thing, when you acquire the field, along with it comes this Ruth the Moabite you may have heard of, the widow of the dead man whose field it was. You must marry her if you buy the field and do your redeeming job in order to raise up a child for her dead husband, a child who inherit the field when he grows up. So this will be his inheritance. And that deal just went south. And I think if Dave Ramsey were in the room or some of our real estate experts or fine, wise investors would say, you know what? I'd pass up on that deal too. I don't want to take on an extra child. That doesn't make financial sense for me and a wife and a grandma. Even if I can own the field and make it part of some inheritance that I'm going to give to them later, I'm not going to benefit from this. This is a bad business deal. So then you have to ask yourself, why in the world does Boaz want this deal? He's very successful. Why add this to his portfolio? And you notice here something really important. This so-called redeemer is nameless. Now, back then when you did this business, you used a person's name as a sign of respect. It was was an important business deal done publicly, and Boaz probably does use the man's name But the author, who we believe is Samuel, he omits the man's name. And he says that Boaz refers to him as friend. And in the Hebrew, that actually means Mr. So-and-so. So So Boaz says, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. And And you have to ask yourself, why does he omit this name? Because in, in many ways, the entire book of Ruth... From beginning to end, as we see the genealogy at the end, it's all about the preservation of a name, right? Elimelech, he he went off in in rebellion uh, to the wrong place in Moab. Even his name's remembered. Even in his bad decisions, Elimelech's name is remembered. Maelon's name is remembered, even though they died. And obviously, we see the names preserved through the genealogy And perhaps the omission of the name intended to spare this man the embarrassment of his conduct, of what he was unwilling to do, but I think it actually implies judgment. He is, after all, the one who refused to do his duty and step in and help his deceased kin's family. He deserves no name in the story for his lack of courage. His name is not going to be remembered. And Boaz, who's making a bad and almost um, unimaginable business decision here. He is the one who is remembered. He's the one who puts himself at great risk to redeem Naomi and Ruth, even though it will not benefit him really in any way. Um, Boaz is eager to take this man's place, so he's, he's careful in his negotiation tactic. That's why he tells him at first kind of the general deal, and then he gives him the fine print because he wants this man to say no. He wants him to forsake his right so that Boaz can essentially purchase the land, purchase the right to redeem Naomi and Ruth. So in today's world, we have to ask ourselves, especially at this, this time of year, when it's a lot of this is about generosity and it's about giving, sacrificially, even when it doesn't benefit you, why do you do it? Why do you give to your own family members, or to friends, or to even complete strangers, as we've been doing through our feast groups? We've been going to these homes and giving gifts to these families. Why do we do it? Do we do it for our own namesake, or do we do it for God's namesake? You know, helping others as the church is meant to emulate the help we receive from our Redeemer Jesus—a selfless. Sacrificial giving. This is a a type of giving that Jesus introduced to the world. This this didn't exist before Jesus. This kind of sacrificial, it it existed in moments like with Boaz, in glimpses. But it was an ethic that was introduced in full when Jesus comes in to existence, to to the world. And so opposite of the way the world works. Because it's easy to be like Mr. So-and-so and say, what's in it for me? And before we're quick to judge him, we have to stop and realize we're a lot like him. At least I did this week. And the truth is is that we never know the grander story that God is writing and what he's going to do with that kind of generosity and sacrifice. You know, God calls us to give our lives trusting that the ministry we're called to do, while it may seem to provide no immediate results, this this is the suffering in service as a Christian. That you may not see results, you may not be thanked, You may go and have a miserable experience that you did not expect to have. Things may not work as you thought they would, as you thought, man, look at what I'm doing, God. Bless me. Make things work. Make life work now. And it may not work because it's really about contributing a small thread to a grand tapestry in a narrative that God is writing. We can't see that grand picture, but God can. And that's something we're to trust and we're to go do the work of ministry no matter how small or big or glamorous or unknown. That's part of what making, makes service in the kingdom so exciting. You don't know what God's doing with it. You might. You might see results, but you may not. That's why at Flat Rock we serve indiscriminately and liberally. Whether it's tutoring or reading or bringing food to families or whatever it might be, we sow seeds in faith. We serve in faith. That's what we're trying to put on display to the world, even when it makes no sense, because they're like, well, how has that benefited you? Show us the benefit. And then Boaz, in order to authenticate this deal, there's this weird sandal ceremony that the author seems like he feels like he needs to clarify and talk to us about, even though I think it's somewhat kind of strange, but... Just to let you all know, I had to kind of dig deep to uh, figure out the explanation for this, and I'll let you in on it really quickly for those who are curious. Um, they exchanged sandals because feet back then played a role in symbolizing the transfer of power, a movement of ownership from one man to the next. Feet were often used actually at closings on real estate deals. So what would happen is the, the buyer, uh, the seller would take the buyer's foot and put it on the new piece of land that he was acquiring and saying, this is yours, you own it now. And that was kind of the symbol, the, 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 the signature on the dotted line, if you will. But in, is, in, this, in this culture, at this particular time, instead of taking his foot and putting it on there, they would just exchange sandals to say, this exchange has been made, you are now the, the, the owner, you have power over this, there's been a transfer in this real estate deal. So that's what's going on with Boaz and this man, and they make it official. And Boaz has officially acquired the right to be the redeemer that Naomi and Ruth need at great cost to himself. So that's how Ruth is redeemed, but then we have to ask ourselves, why is Ruth redeemed? Why choose this Moabite foreigner who is, has a reputation for being um, sexually immoral because that's the people that she came from, who has a reputation of being someone who is uh, an enemy of the people of God, who is not welcome in this community, why choose her? Especially when she can give nothing back or add nothing to your own legacy, or at least that's what they thought. And I think the reason that she is chosen is because it's supposed to be an example of relationships that God treasures in His kingdom's economy which is so opposite of what is valued in this life. Many of us just want to surround ourselves with people or know people that benefit us, that make our name great. And a lot of people we're not really spending time with because we don't really understand how it's making us more well-known, how it's increasing our reputation. So we want to do it for status, for social status. But what about loving people that don't increase your namesake? Boaz was not out to win a name for himself because he was secure in who his name was before God. Okay, Boaz is, you know, mentions in, throughout the book, he mentions the Lord as his Lord, and, and he wants the people that work for him to work unto the Lord. And so he's, he's a God-fearer, and he knew in his identity who he was, and so it freed him to take, take on risky ventures of redemption. Does that make sense? He could act liberally because he knew of the security he had before God. And that risk is praised by his people. You look at verse 11, it says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You know, Ruth is chosen in part because she represented the type of people that God had a heart to redeem. And the names in her genealogy tell us all we need to know about the type of people that God of Christianity is interested in giving worth and value to. That's what it is to redeem something, right? It's lost its worth and value. You renew worth and value. That's what, God is, that's what the God of Christianity is doing. He's not loving you because of what you can do for Him. He's loving you because it is in his character and in his nature he does he receives glory out of it but it's not so much what he you can do for him as as much as it is what he can do for you. And you notice Tamar is mentioned as this blessed people well if you all remember the story of Tamar it's a little odd to say the least but in Genesis chapter 38 Tamar uh, dressed herself up as a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law so that she could have a child and perpetuate her line, which is, you know, disturbing, to say the least. And she is remembered as being part of the people of God. She was an outsider like Ruth, who was brought in and assimilated into the people of God. And the difference between the two is that Ruth revealed her identity to meet Boaz, her Redeemer. Tamar concealed her identity, but it's showing that the family of God is this mixed bag and this sordid bunch of people. Ruth, like Tamar, is graciously given the great reward of having her womb healed. You remember in chapter 1, she couldn't have kids for 10 years. It's one thing that we forget about Ruth, or I forgot about Ruth. She was barren for a decade. And God calls this foreigner in. He gives her full stake and in inheritance in the kingdom and with Boaz. And he heals her womb, and she has a child. And it mentions that the Lord, um, in, in verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. It's the only other time, it's the second time the Lord's name is mentioned, and being inserted in this story is actually doing something in the lives of the people. And the first time his name is mentioned, the only other time it's mentioned, is when he came back to Israel, and he showed favor to Israel, and he healed their famine. And now he's giving her birth. So God is acting in very specific ways in this story for very specific reasons to work out a plan of redemption a greater plan that they can't quite understand. They can't see the full tapestry of what God is actually doing. That's why we're given the genealogy at the end here. That genealogy, these random, what seems to be this random sort of names, it really is meant to serve as this link, to link the smaller narrative of Ruth's story in with the larger narrative of the church universal. So it's through Ruth's line that Jesus will come. Through this foreigner and this enemy, God will redeem his people through her eventual ancestor, which is Jesus himself. Who will come through the line of David. And God can, by his power and grace, insert whoever he wants to fulfill that plan. That's what's supposed to be the what moment of this story. That's when you're supposed to say, yes, this is worth redeeming Ruth and taking great risk for Boaz to take this great risk it is all worth it it is worth more than 200 million dollars because he's inserting himself in the greatest legacy the world has ever known that's at least what we believe is the church and it, your name and your genealogy was everything in this culture it was your resume it's how you were known and people wanted to know who you were related to and who you came from and this false redeemer was doing a great disservice to his legacy out of fear. And Boaz is doing a great service to his legacy out of faith, taking on this great risk to redeem her. I'll close with this, uh, answering uh, what I think is a necessary question to end with. Why did God see fit to send Jesus through such a soiled and sordid line to redeem misfits and rebels like us, if that's how you see yourself? Now, you may see yourself as pretty good, and you're great, and you totally understand why Jesus would redeem you, and it makes sense. (laughs) I don't really understand, uh, as I interrogate my own heart and the desires I have and the mistakes I've made and the failures I've made, why God would choose to send Jesus to redeem someone like me. And I think that this story is our answer. In Matthew 1, this, this genealogy picks up, actually, And Matthew begins to complete the genealogy from David all the way down to Jesus. And that's really what what we're meant to read next is Matthew chapter 1. And we see that Matthew tells us that Jesus has come for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost, as he says in Matthew 1. It was to rescue sinners, of which we should see ourselves as the foremost, which is exactly what Paul saw himself as. It was to rescue sinners like us. Jesus didn't arrive in a hazmat suit to ward off evil influences. He didn't quarantine himself from the evil. He took on flesh. He came in the form of a baby, naked and vulnerable to the world. I mean, that is a remarkable reality. That's how our Savior chose to come. He didn't come riding on a white horse with a sword in his hand to mow down our enemies. He didn't come to to increase your bank account and make you the wealthiest, most well-to-do person in the world. He came as a suffering, sovereign, servant king—the only one of his kind in all of history. To take on flesh, he arrived naked and vulnerable, and he, just as he arrived, he also went out on that cross between two thieves, naked, vulnerable, abused, despised, rejected. Why would he take that on? Why would the king, if he is who he says he is, if he is sovereign Lord and King of the universe, why relegate himself to that? That's what we're remembering at Christmas. That's what we're supposed to celebrate. You know, Jesus does it this way because he can't save us from a distance. He didn't save you from a distance. He inserted himself into the story, into the narrative, so that your story could be a part of a larger story, a grander story of redemption, a small thread of a tapestry that one day will come to full completion. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see your life that way? Do you see your contributions that way? Do you see your sacrifices that way? Your giving, your service? Do you do it in faith or are you expecting your own reward to make a great name for yourself or to make a great name for God? If you've been living to make a great name for yourself, here's the beauty of every Sunday that we come in here is that you can always be renewed. You can always be redeemed. Whatever value you've you've tried to acquire, it has been worthless before a holy God. The only value that we can have to merit before Him is the righteousness of this Savior, this Redeemer, who gives it to us liberally through faith and repentance. So the beauty is we can come in whatever shape we are, with whatever decisions we've made, no matter how long we've rejected this or not accepted it or not given ourselves to it or believed or had faith in it, you can have faith today. You can submit and surrender before this gracious Redeemer in faith and repentance today. So, as we come to the sable this morning, ask yourself who is your Redeemer? Is he nameless? What name does he have? The church's Redeemer is not nameless, his name is Jesus Christ. So as we come to this table, ask yourself, do you know that kind of love? Do you know the love of that Redeemer? And if you don't, you can this morning, even for the first time. Let's pray.